Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. Be here now with us. Send down your Holy Spirit upon us and bless our mission, bless our work. Open up our minds to the true teachings of your church, that we may prosper in your ways all the days of your life. You are blessed both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Carlo Broussard is a native of, native of Crowley, Louisiana, left a promising musical career to devote himself full-time to the work of Catholic apologetics. For more than a decade, he's traveled the country teaching apologetics, biblical studies, theology, and philosophy. Carlo has published articles on a variety of subjects in Catholic Answers magazine, is a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live, and is an active blogger at Catholic.com. Carlo holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in theology from Catholic Distance University and the Augustine Institute, and is currently working on his master's in philosophy with Holy Apostles College and Seminary, evidence of which is the detail of the handouts that you've got. He has also worked for several years in an apprenticeship with nationally known author and theologian, Father Robert J. Spitzer, at the Magis Center of Reason and Faith. And as Father was just mentioning, uh, just a second ago, and then at the beginning when we when we went live here, there's a, uh, a long-standing friendship between him and Father, so we're really glad to have Carlo here. And I can tell you that for the little bit of time that him and I have been working behind the scenes together, it's been a, uh, a true choice. I'm really excited. Please join me in welcoming Carlo. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. It's great to be with you all. Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah and Andy, for having me. Uh, just to let our viewers know, uh, as Father said, this was a long time coming, and Father Hezekiah was actually instrumental for me getting involved in professional apologetics and in the apostolate. Many years ago, even before Father was deacon Sabatino Cornazio, right, uh, I actually called uh, Sabatino then at the time up and asked him about this institute that he had started uh, seeking some coaching to get some help to start my own institute called the Divine Child Institute, which I did start and ran for a couple of years in the Yakima Diocese in Washington State. And then from there, started working with Father Robert Spitzer and then here at Catholic Answers. So Father Hezekiah, you are instrumental in me being here this evening uh, presenting to everyone. So I want to thank you for that. God bless you, Carla. Carlo, you're too kind, and you've been an inspiration to me, too. I remember that phone call and the many phone calls we had after that, and uh, you're a great gift to the church. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Well, I hope everyone is ready to get your Thomistic geek on, <laughs> because I am. 
Uh, I was. I told Andy when he asked me to uh, do this webinar that I had been waiting a very long time for an opportunity to really dive in and to study and research on the five waves of St. Thomas Aquinas as presented in the Summa Theologiae. And so this was a great joy for me and a great opportunity to be able to research, put this material together, and to be able to present it to you this evening and, of course, next week as well. So this evening, we're, I'm going to try my best to say a few things by way of introduction about the five ways and then to take a look at the first and second way of St. Thomas Aquinas. And then next week, uh, I'll do my best to try and tackle ways three, four, and five. And this is the first time, I'll be honest with you, this is the first time I actually present the five ways in this setting, in this formal setting. So we'll see how it goes and how much I can get through. I will try my best to get through everything. The handouts are important. Uh, because given the nature of the beast and given the nature of St. Thomas's five ways, the handouts are very helpful because what I did is I've tried to lay it out in very clear and succinct ways to connect the dots and so that every link in the chain is connected for you so that Hopefully, there's no holes in the reasoning. And if you find a hole, let me know, because I want to try and fix it. Uh, so, and, and so it's some heavy lifting. It's pretty heavy lifting, uh, given the nature of metaphysics and looking at proofs for God's existence. So the handouts are important, and I will be referring to them. So um, just a, a few things uh, by way of introduction. As you see on the handout, the introduction is divided into two parts. So a few things to know about the five ways, and then I'll make a few comments about some of the resources that I've provided to you. Obviously, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just want to highlight a few of them. So some things to know about the five ways by way of introduction. First of all, for the most part, they're not original to St. Thomas Aquinas. So, for example, the majority of the reasoning found in the first way, or the way for motion, uh, comes from Aristotle. It's found in Aristotle, the idea of motion being the reduction of potency to act, and we'll talk a little more about that in a few moments. The second way, when you read the second way, as I will in what Thomistic scholars call an existential approach, when we're looking at existence and the cause of existence and efficient causes of existence, that's, that can be found in the writings of Avicenna, an early 11th century Islamic philosopher. So the roots, you know, found in a philosopher predating St. Thomas Aquinas. The third way, some parts of the third way, from possibility and necessity, and we'll talk about that in, uh, next week, parts of it are rooted in Aristotle. Other parts are rooted in another Islamic philosopher from the mid to the late 12th century, Averroes. And even the mid to late 12th century Jewish philosopher, Moses Maimonides. So one, two, and three, they have their roots. A lot of the parts have their roots in other philosophers. The fourth way seems to be a meshing of Plato and Aristotle together, sort of a synthesis of uh, lines of reasoning found in both philosophers. And then finally, the fifth way, which is from final causality, what we call in philosophy, things directed to a certain end. We'll talk about it, right? 
that, that the idea of final causality is taken straight from Aristotle himself. So for the most part, not all, but for the most part, the, the elements of the five ways are not original to Aquinas. He's pulling from different things. These are, as uh, Professor Edward Fazer said, these are lines of reasoning, lines of thought that are sort of in the air, right? I like the way he puts that, that Aquinas is sort of pulling from and to create a synthesis of these five ways. The second thing to know about the five ways is that some things are original. So for the most part, they're not original, but there are some things that are original. So for example, for the first way, if we look at the first way with a, a highly metaphysical approach and we look at motion as having being itself, like there's a uh, philosopher's called an, an essay of the accident of motion. It, it falls within the category of being in as much as it's act, there's actuality there. And when we look at motion as having being, as the acquisition of new existence, even in the accidental order. That's sort of unique to what may very well be going on in the background of the first way. The second way, once again, if we look at it in the existential way, if we look at it as efficient causes of existence, what we find is that anything, as we're going to see, anything that is caused to exist by something else doesn't have existence by its very nature. It doesn't have existence essentially. It only has it accidentally. That is, the existence is extrinsic to what it is, a difference between what it is and that it is. Reading it in light of the essence, what, and existence, that it is, distinction, which is prominent in Aquinas' work, Deinte et Essentia, on being in essence. The third way is, seems to be unique for Aquinas in that he seems to be meshing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, elements from both Plato and Aristotle uh, to create, uh, excuse me, that's the fourth way, I messed up. The third way is a meshing of the various sources from Aristotle, Averroes, Moses, Maimonides, and he seems to be putting it all together to construct his third way. And his fourth way, when he talks about what we're going to learn next week, gradations of being, of how some things are better than others, you know, a human being has more goodness than a rock or the cockroach, right? When we talk about these gradations of being or the hierarchy of being, Aquinas sees in that as a pathway to God. And this idea of gradations of being or gradations of truth, as Aquinas says in the fourth way, comes from Aristotle. Aristotle wrote about some things being more true than others, speaking of ontological truth, but we'll talk about that next week. But Aristotle never used that line of reasoning to get to God. He simply recognized the gradations of truth, of intelligibility in things. But Aquinas sees in the, uh, the sensible world these gradations of being, goodness, truth, or nobility, and then sees that as a pathway of leading to God. And that's the fourth way. And then the fifth way, although the idea of final causality and how things are naturally directed to certain ends, the Greek is telos there for an end or teleology, right? That things are directed to ends. Although that comes from Aristotle, Aristotle didn't use that line of reasoning in order to arrive at God. But Aristotle does. 
the idea of a supreme governor, supreme intelligence governing all things within the universe to their natural ends. So, for the most part, not everything is original to Aquinas, but there are some things that are original to Aquinas. And that's important to note because it's sort of a synthesis. Of, and, and that's, keep in mind this, a little side note here, uh, we can learn something from that because notice if what I'm saying is true, which I think it is, given my research of Aquinas' five ways, we can learn from Aquinas in that he's pulling from the best of the greatest thinkers that were at, during his time and before his time. And he's pulling those good things from those great thinkers, putting them together in a coherent system to present to others. And that's something that we can learn that we need to do as Catholic Christians, of looking to great thinkers. I don't care if they're an atheist, right? If they're an atheist, there's going to be some truth to what they say and some ways of thinking, some methodology that could be beneficial, right, for our presentation of the truth concerning God, Jesus, Christianity, the Catholic Church, or whatever it may be. So we have to be open to taking the good from certain thinkers, no matter who they are, and being able to synthesize it into a coherent whole. Another thing that we need to know about the five ways, and this is extremely important as well, is they are summaries that presuppose a certain metaphysical system and metaphysical principles. Okay, these are, these are sketches of lines of reasoning in order to get to God's existence. And as we're going to see, he does think they're demonstrative. These lines of thought, these, these arguments are demonstrative, but they're just sketches. He's just giving a summary. So as we go through the five ways, as we're reading the, the text of Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae, I'm going to suggest that there's certain metaphysical principles that are operating in the background that gives substance and demonstration to what he's saying, okay? And so that's important to keep in note. They're not meant to be standalone pieces of reasoning ordered to convincing the hard-nosed skeptic. It, once again, it presupposes a whole metaphysical system that makes these arguments as robust as they are when fleshed out. So they're sort of summary seed form, and it's our job as readers of Aquinas to unpack the meaning of what he's saying given the metaphysical principles that he's articulating in various other writings. And Thomistic scholars have done this in the umph degree, and they have done a marvelous job at it. And if I may toot the horn of one particular Thomistic philosopher that's sort of a go-to guy for me and my research is Dr. Edward Fazer. Uh, he's done a marvelous job of sort of presenting the background of these metaphysical principles that's driving the five ways. One source that I have in your resource section of the introduction handout is his book Aquinas. I think it's a, big, a beginner's guide, although it's not really a beginner's guide. <laughs> it's a pretty heavy lifting, but he has a whole chapter in there where he walks through sort of the metaphysical principles that underlie the five ways and, and gives a rational defense of those metaphysical principles. And then he has a fuller treatment of that in his book, An Introduction to Scholastic Metaphysics, where he gives a full book-length treatment of all these metaphysical principles, defending them against objections from atheists, etc. 
Uh, so these are summaries presupposing metaphysical principles. And as I present the five ways to you, I'm going to do what my best to draw out those metaphysical principles in order to show that these five ways do indeed work as demonstrations of God's existence. Fourth thing to know about the five ways is the being that Aquinas arrives at at the conclusion of each of the five ways is not a full blown out understanding of God, okay? So many times, skeptics or atheists will read the five ways, arrive at other oh, uncaused calls or the unmoved mover and say, well, that's not God of classical theism, right? But they fail to understand that Aquinas spends a heck of a lot more time in over a hundred articles unpacking what's embedded in the concepts of an unmoved mover, first way, an uncaused cause, second way, an absolutely necessary being who does not derive its necessity from something else, third way, an unlimited maximal being, not limited in any way, supreme being, fourth way, the supreme intelligent governor of all things, of all things besides himself, the fifth way. So these concepts or Embedded within these concepts are the various divine attributes that require more legwork to unpack. So know that when we arrive at the conclusions, Aquinas is going to say, this is what we call God. This is what we call God, implying that more legwork needs to be done to unpack what's embedded there in order to arrive at a conclusion, this is God. And not only this is what we call God. God. So that's important to know. Another thing to know about the five ways is that the five ways are not the only ways, okay? Uh, Aquinas' five ways, of course, get the most attention, but there are many other arguments for God's existence that Aquinas thinks are sound and reasonable and actually demonstrative. So, for example, there's the Neoplatonic argument, and what that is is you observe a plurality of things and you're able to reason to a single being, right? So from diversity to unity is this Neoplatonic argument. That's found in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences, as well as De Potentia on the power of God, De Potentia Dei, his work on the power of God. There is also another way that he sees valid, and that is the Augustinian argument, the argument from St. Augustine from truth. Uh, reasoning from necessary truths that we acknowledge to be a reality, to be true, and then reasoning to uh, a God who is subsistent truth itself, in which all truth lies and is found. And he presents this in his prologue on the Gospel of St. John. There is also another uh, argument for God's existence found in the De Potentia Dei, on the power of God, and that is from a multiplicity of goodness, to a first principle of goodness, which is kind of similar, as we're going to see next week, to the fourth way, although a bit distinct. So once again, multiplicity of goodness to a principal source of goodness. And then in the Summa Contra Gentiles, chapter Gentiles, or however you want to pronounce it, right? The Summa Contra Gentiles, book three, chapter 15, St. Thomas Aquinas presents what I believe to be a distinct argument, and that is from the indifference to being of looking at things within the universe that can be or not be, they're indifferent to being, and then he reasons to a necessary being and to an absolutely necessary being. 
We're not going to be covering that in the five ways because I think it's distinct from the third way. Although many Thomistic scholars, there's a lot of debate about whether these two are the same proof or different proofs and how to read each of these proofs. And then finally, the last argument, and that is his famous argument from the De Ente et Essentia, on being in essence, or in essence, on, on being in essence. Or, and in there, uh, Thomas Aquinas presents his most famous proof, and that is by reasoning to the, from the real distinction of essence and existence, and then reasoning to a first cause whose essence and existence is identical. There's actually a great book on this, by the way, uh, that recently came out, I guess, a few years back by Gavin Kerr, and I think it's just entitled On Being in Essence. And he gives a full-length treatment of that particular argument, which, to, in my estimation, as I read Aquinas' Five Ways, it's very plausible to make the argument that that argument in the De Ente et Essentia is sort of running in the background of all of the five ways, in fact, or at least in some way is driving the five ways. So it's important to note that these five ways are not the only ways. You know, as Father Hezekiah, <laughs> as he said earlier before we started, there's a hundred thousand proofs for God's existence, right? And I'm sure there is because there's more than a hundred thousand things in existence within the physical universe that could be starting points for God's existence, right? Uh, but the point being is that there are many proofs for God's existence, many of them that can be fit within the category of a metaphysical demonstration. That is, the premises are metaphysically necessary. They're reducible to first principles, and thus the conclusion necessarily follows from the principles, so it's of metaphysical necessity. But then there's a host of other types of proofs for God's existence that or probable arguments, dialectical arguments. They're not metaphysically demonstrable, but boy, they sure do give good reason to believe in God's existence. And that leads us to the next thing that we need to know about Aquinas' five ways. And that is Aquinas thought they were indeed demonstrative. That is to say they're metaphysically necessary. Not just a probable argument, such as the argument from fine-tuning, right? We see all this, uh, whether you look at fine-tuning of biological organisms and all of the complexity, and then reasoning and inferring uh, the reasonable conclusion of a supreme intelligence, right? Or if you argue, if you construct the argument of fine-tuning from the fine-tuning of the initial conditions and constants at the beginning of our universe, uh, reasonably uh, inferring from that the need for a supreme intelligence that sets the, the values of the initial conditions and the constants in order for the universe to evolve for the development of life, right? Those sorts of arguments are probabilistic in nature. They're not metaphysical demonstrations because they can't redu be reduced to first principles. But the five ways, as I hope to share and over the next two uh, parts of this webinar, I think, and as Thomas thinks, are metaphysical demonstrations. So, for example, in part one, question two, article two, the question is whether it can be demonstrated that God exists. And here's Aquinas' answer. Hence, the, exist the existence of God, insofar it is, as it is not self-evident to us, can be demonstrated from those of his effects which are known to us. So from effect, we reason from effect to cause, and that's the, the methodology that, uh, of the five ways themselves. 
And then to the question in Article 3, does God exist? Of course, Aquinas answers that God exists can be proven in five ways. So I don't think these are, and nor does Thomas think these are probable arguments or sort of ways to God. No, these are demonstrative ways to God. And hopefully I can make that clear for you. We'll see. <laughs> and then finally, the five ways are subject to many different interpretations. All right. I tell you what, it's, it's like a, a, a minefield, right? I mean, you're just everywhere you step, it's like, oh, wait, well, wait a minute, let me rethink what I was thinking, right? So Thomistic scholars go back and forth about how to read Thomas's text of the five ways as presented in the Summa Theologiae. Many scholars develop these awesome metaphysical demonstrations, maybe from certain elements in the five ways. So they see one thing in Thomas's five ways, they see another thing, and then they sort of develop this metaphysical demonstration, which is sound and valid and proves God's existence, but it doesn't quite fit, right, exactly what St. Thomas is saying. And as I've done the research, I've come to the conclusion that uh, it is extremely hard. So I say that in order to say this. As I present uh, the five ways in this session, in, in our next session, I am simply presenting to you what I currently am satisfied with on how to read Aquinas' text. So if there are any Thomistic scholars out there, right, anybody who studies uh, Thomas's writings in detail, you have a, a better interpretation or another way of reading the text to offer me, I am totally open to it, right? But I simply am going to present what I currently am intellectually satisfied. And, and the, the different interpretations are like, you'll see, you'll kind of see this as we go through the five ways. Like some scholars will look at the five ways in a strictly physical way and argue that Thomas's reasoning just on a physical plane without necessarily immediately jumping to a metaphysical plane. But then other scholars, when you read the text, it would seem that Aquinas is using the physical, certain things that we come to know about the physical universe from the philosophy of nature, and then uses that as the launching pad, or you might say the gateway, in order to get to the metaphysical plane. And then from that metaphysical plane, able to reason to God's existence on that metaphysical level. I must admit, I tend to favor the metaphysical approach and how we read Aquinas' five ways. Uh, because I, I think there are some problems if you stay on the physical level, you run into some pretty hard brick walls in arriving at God's existence. Only once you get on the metaphysical plane, that which is above the physical, that which is above nature, and we're reasoning being qua being, insofar as a, something is a being having existence distinct from nothing, then we're able to arrive at a true conclusion of God's existence. So I may tend to hyper-metaphysicalize, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, these five ways, but once again, this is simply currently where I'm at intellectually and how I'm intellectually satisfied with reading the five ways. If not anything, if for some reason I'm not interpreting the text in an authentic Thomistic way, as some Thomistic scholars would say, then at least I think they're metaphysical demonstrations for God's existence that are Thomistically inspired, right? 
All right, so that's some things that we need to know by way of introduction about the five ways. And the reason why I spent so much time on that is because the title of the presentation is The Five Ways of Aquinas, right? Answering Atheism. Now, some of the resources, I'm not going to read through all of them. I just want to highlight a few of them for you. Uh, one of them I highlighted already is by Dr. Ed Fazer, Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. That gives a great treatment of the five ways that's not only introductory, which can introduce the reader who doesn't have a background in philosophy to the five ways, but he actually provides a robust defense of the five ways against common objections that are proposed to the five ways. So that's a great resource. Uh, if you want to read any book to start on the five ways, I would highly recommend Dr. Fazer's book, Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. Uh, there's some other books worthy of highlight as well. Uh, one of the books that was very influential in my research of the five ways there listed is by Dr. Dennis Bonnet. He's a retired philosophy professor uh, for 36 years at Niagara University in, in New York. And his book is entitled Aquinas' Proofs for God's Existence, St. Thomas Aquinas on the Praxidens Necessarily Implies the Per Se. <laughs> That's a lot of metaphysical jargon, but the point is, so he's going through each of the five ways, gives plenty of commentary from some, some, many of the Thomistic scholars of the 20th century and their common comments on the five ways. And it's a great, uh, very much fruitful study. So uh, those are a couple of resources for the five ways in general. But then I also provided you in the handout some resources for the five ways specifically. And many of those resources to, that looks at each of the five ways in a specific way, uh, come from journal articles. So not everybody has access to the Thomas Journal or the New, New Scholasticism or the American Quarterly Philosophical Journal. But if you are able to pay a subscription to these journals that I have listed for these resources, I would highly recommend you do that. If you're a Thomistic geek like me and you want to delve into this stuff, more in depth and look at each of these five ways in more detail, I would highly encourage you to do that. So that's there for your taking. And so with that, let's move uh, on to the first way from motion. And I didn't intend to say that. <laughs> so let's move to motion, right? So Aquinas's first way is from motion. So that's the datum, right? The datum, the starting point that which we observe within the physical universe is motion. Things move. Now, granted, somebody out there is going to say, well, maybe motion is an illusion, right? Well, obviously, if that's the objection, we're going to have to put the first way on hold, and we're going to have to take a step back and defend the existence of motion or change in general itself, because motion is a subspecies of change. Motion and change can be synonymous in certain ways. So we would have to first take a step back and, and establish that metaphysical principle of motion being a reality. And that can be done. As I mentioned before, Dr. Ed Fazer has done that in quite some detail in his work, Introduction to Scholastic Metaphysics. And of course, other Thomistic scholars have done it as well. But Ed Fazer is one of the more popular ones. But assuming that that objection is taken care of and that there is motion, that's what, that's what we're starting with. And so here's what Aquinas says from the text of the Summa itself. The first and more manifest way is the argument for motion. It's certain and evident to our senses. Now, keep in mind Aquinas is working on that Aristotelian precept that all of our human knowledge 
comes from the senses. So at least from, first from the senses, whatever's in the intellect, it was first derived from the senses. So he trusts senses. Of course, a skeptic may doubt the trustworthiness of our senses. Okay, once again, we're going to have to take a step back and deal with that obstacle before we can move forward. But assuming that's not an obstacle for our friend that we're dialoguing with, it's evident to our senses there's motion. Continuing, that in the world, some things are in motion. Now, motion, and here he's going to define motion. This is key. Now, motion is nothing else than the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. For motion is nothing else than the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. All right? Now, Thomas is already employing some highly metaphysical concepts here, reduction from potency to act, or potentiality to actuality. He's taking that directly from Aristotle himself. So as Aristotle would define motion as the act of a being in potency insofar as it's in potency. Now you're thinking to yourself, what in the world does that mean, <laughs> right? Okay, so maybe a, a simpler way of putting it is, it's this progressive actualization of a potential, all right? So it's sort of this in-betweenness of pure potentiality. So the bullet is in the gun and it's not fired yet. It's in between that and actuality, the bullet has hit its target. So it's the actualization of a potency, but insofar as it's in potency, there's still more actuality to be gained before it terminates in its end. So it's this in-between stage. It's in between pure potency and actuality. It's the actualization of a potency, but insofar as it's still in potency to its terminus, okay? So an example of one particular type of motion would be locomotion. And this is what Aquinas uses. One of the examples he uses for motion, the reduction of a potential to, a reduction of potency to act, in the first way, and that is a stone being moved from point A to point B by the stick, which is moved by the hand, right? So the stone, as it's at rest, is in potency to getting from point A to point B. If it's at point B, it's not in motion either because it's actually there. The motion of the stone is the in-between stage of its potency to be being actualized, right? That's local motion. Now, here's what's key. Aquinas doesn't only have local motion in mind. He has a broader concept of motion, as did Aristotle, that could apply also to motion or change, is how we would better understand it today, on a qualitative level and a quantitative level. So qualitative change would be considered motion as well, as Thomas himself exemplifies in his example of the fire making the wood hot. You could use the example of, you know, the fire making the water hot in the pot on the stove, trying to reach, you know, from 72, it might be uh, 72 degrees and trying to reach the 200 mark. And as much as it's at 72, it's not in motion. If it's at the 200 mark, it's not in motion. But as you add heat to the water and it's in that progress, progressive actualization of potency, that process of actualization of potency to the 200, it's in motion. So that's qualitative motion or qualitative change. So Aquinas not only has local motion in mind, he has qualitative motion as well, the sort of expansive view 
of motion. And then, of course, quantitative change would uh, constitute an example of motion as well. So, you know, if I eat too much good Cajun fruit, food from southern Louisiana, right? I'm from uh, near Lafayette, Louisiana, and we love our good Cajun food, right? Well, when I go home to give a talk and mama does the cooking, guess what? I have a quantitative change, <laughs> right? I gain weight, all right? So that would be that progressive actualization of the adding of weight would be considered a quantitative change or quantitative motion. Now, one key point about motion that I would submit to you is sort of running in the background, once again, of Aquinas's presentation of the first way is the what we would call in philosophy the essay of accidents or the essay of motion because notice how he's defining motion it's the reduction of potency to act or the actualization of potency where there's a potential and there's the gaining of the actuality right now in as much as there is an acquisition acquiring new actuality there's an acquisition of new being. There's an acquisition of new existence, even if it's only in the accidental order. Because remember, for Aristotle, you know, the, the concept of being applies not only to substantial things, me, you, Fidel, and Rover the dogs, right? A being not only applies to substantial things, to a substance, but being also applies to the nine categories of accidents these things that inhere in a substance, such as quantity, quality, place, etc. So the new actuality that's gained in motion is new being. It's new existence. Now, it's not existence uh, in an absolute sense. It's sort of a qualified existence. Aquinas calls it esse secundum, a secondary being, which is distinct from the esse primum, the, the, the act of the being of the subsisting subject, that a substantial thing is distinct from nothing. That's the essay primum. But the accidents that it acquires, for example, in the process of motion, is a essay secundum, a secondary being. But nevertheless, it is being. It's under the concept or the umbrella of being. And this is going to be key as we move through the first way, as we read through it, in order to arrive at God, not only as pure act, but also as pure essay itself, pure existence itself, right? So I would submit that this understanding of motion being the acquisition of new actuality, but in Thomas's mind, for something to be an act is it to be under the umbrella of being. So it's the acquisition of new existence, the acquisition of new being, which puts us on the metaphysical plane, which allows us to reason to God's existence. And of course, that's one Thomistic interpretation. <laughs> there are many others. And, but this is very prominent in a Thomistic scholar by the name of Joseph Owens. Uh, he has written several scholarly papers on this idea of motion being the actuality of new essay or new existence. I have those scholarly articles referenced for you and the resource section uh, in that introduction handout. And then also, too, there's another article that I want to draw your attention to that articulates this idea of the essay of accidents, of the acquisition of new being, new existence in motion, and that is by John Canazes. And the title of the article is Thomistic Existentialism 
and the proofs ex motu at contra gentiles one uh, book one chapter 13. Now with that background knowledge in place we know what motion is now let's look at the argument itself. Now I have what I've presented to you in your handout I give you a long version and then I give you a shortened version all right now bear with me I want to walk you through the long version itself when we get to the end once you have all these metaphysical principles in mind then you can look at that shortened version and say oh yeah well now I know how I would justify the premises of that shortened version so you could memorize the shortened version but the long version is really what's going to do the driving force of the metaphysical demonstration. So I've divided the first way into five steps, okay, five steps. So the first step, step one, is basically just sort of giving a syllogism for describing what motion is and how that motion is present in the world of sense. Because remember Aquinas said, the first and more manifest way is the argument for motion. It's certain and evident to our senses and the world. Things are in motion. So, for example, in step one, motion entails the process of having a potential to new existence, even in the accidental order, to new accidental existence actualized. So it entails that process, having a potential to new existence actualized. All right? Premise two, X is in motion. So we see the stone being moved in the process of its potential to get to point B being actualized to get to point B by the stick, right? So it's in motion. So if X is in motion, well then it follows, therefore, conclusion one, X, the stone, or the stick itself, or uh, the microphone that I'm picking up right now, right? X is in the process of having a potential to new accidental existence actualized, all right? Now, notice I gave you a syllogism there, right? The point of the syllogism is so that, once again, to connect each and every link in the chain, to connect all of the dots. I've done my best to try to plug every hole, right, so there's no holes in the reasoning. If you happen to find one, let me know. I'd be more than happy to uh, plug that hole. But I, I gave you the syllogism so that you can just follow it very succinctly. I don't know about you, but to my intellect, that's very satisfying. <laughs> Some of you might find it boring or dry and cold or whatever. I don't know, uh, but it's very satisfying to my mind. So that's step one. We're just articulating what motion is. The actualization of a potency insofar as it's in potency. We see X in motion. Therefore, X is in the process of having the potential to new accidental existence actualized. All right. Back to Aquinas' text. Here we go. Aquinas writes, now whatever is in motion, so it seems as if he's jumped. He started with motion, now he's jumped to a new step. Now whatever is in motion is put in motion by another, for nothing can be in motion except it is in potentiality to that towards which it is in motion. So he's basically saying whatever is in motion must be moved by another. Whereas a thing moves inasmuch as it is an act. Nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality, except by something in a state of actuality. It's therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way, a thing should be both mover and move, that it should move itself as a whole. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. So he's establishing that whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. So here's how I would syllogize that, right? 
as you see there in your handout, premise three, whatever's in the process of having its potential to new accidental existence actualized has that potential concurrently actualized by another that is actual. So the stone is being moved, it's in motion, but the stone can only be in motion insofar as it's moved by the stick concurrently. While the process of actualization of the potential is taking place, there is a concurrent actualizer, right? So premise four, X is in the process of having a potential to new existence actualized, right? The stone's being moved by the sick. Therefore, X is in the process of having a potential to new existence concurrently actualized by another that is actual. Call it concurrent actualize A, right? So concurrent actualizer A. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, what about premise three? I said whatever's in the process of having a potential to new accidental existence actualized has that potential concurrently actualized by another that is actual? How do we justify that? Well, here's the validation for that, right? So premise three, validation. Number one, this new existence that is being derived is either going to be from the thing itself, from nothing, or from another. Now, it can't be from the thing itself, and this is what Aquinas is drawing out. It can't be from the thing itself, because in that case, the thing would be giving what it does not have. It would be actual, in as much as it has the new existence to give, and it would be in potentiality to that new existence, because it doesn't have it. So it would be actual of that new existence and potential to that new existence in the same respect at the same place and time. But as Aquinas recognizes, that's absurd. That violates the principle of non-contradiction. So the new acquired accidental existence that motion is the result of, that, that involves the process of motion, can't come from the thing itself. It can't come from nothing, right? Obviously, we would be violating the principle of sufficient reason, but just note this. If the new existence were coming from nothing, right, well, then there would be nothing to distinguish the potency to the act from the actuality itself. Nothing to distinguish the potency to the act from the actuality itself. And if there's no difference, then there's identity. If there's nothing to distinguish potency from the act, well, then it's just going to be potency to act, right? And there will be no motion. So it can't come, the new existence can't be derived from itself, nor from nothing. Therefore, the new existence must be derived from another. Thus, Aquinas' principle, whatever is moved is moved by another, is established. So that's step two. Now we move to step three. If that by which it is put in motion be itself put in motion, then this also must needs be put in motion by another and that by another again. So what Aquinas is doing here is he's establishing the links in the chain. So we have something X that's moved, the stone. It must be moved by another, namely the stick. And if that mo first mover, which we call a concurrent actualizer A, right? C-A-A, as you see on your handout. If that first concurrent actualizer A is in itself in the process of having an actualization of a potency, well, then it's going to require a mover for it. So to put it formally, in step three there, we're at premise five if you're keeping track. If at the moment 
Concurrent actualizer A is actualizing X's potential to new existence. If at that moment CA itself has a potential to new accidental existence being concurrently actualized by another actualizer, call it concurrent actualizer B, the concurrent actualizer A is a concurrent intermediate actualizer. So concurrent actualizer A would be in between the concurrent actualizer B and the effect itself, namely the motion of the stone. On supposition, premise six, at the moment, concurrent actualizer A is actualizing X's potential to acquire the new accidental existence, CA does have its potential to new existence being actualized by CAB, right? So the stick moving the stone does indeed have its potential to new accidental existence actualized by the hand. So it's an intermediate. Therefore, on supposition, conclusion three, A, concurrent actualizer A, is a concurrent intermediate actualizer, right? You might call it a CIA, all right? So, as I said, once again, the handout's pretty important here, but just so that you can follow step by step, right? So, what, did, what have we done so far? In step one, there's motion in the world. Step two, whatever's in motion needs a mover, right? It needs to be put in motion by something else. The actualization of a potency by something already actual. Step three, if that mover, concurrent actualizer A, itself has a potential to new existence, new accidental existence being actualized, well then it's going to need a concurrent actualizer other than itself, call that concurrent actualizer B. So where we're at right now is we have this chain, this series of concurrent actualizers that so far explain the actualization of the potentiality of X or the stone, all right? Now step four is where the gist of the argument lies, right? This is sort of the heart of the argument. But this cannot go on to infinity. What cannot go on to infinity? Concurrent actualizer A of X's potential to new existence, concurrently actualized by another concurrent actualizer B. That series, so says Aquinas, cannot go on to infinity. Why? As he says in the text, because then there would be no first mover. And we're going to talk about that. There would be no first actualizer, and what that means, we'll get to it. And consequently, no other mover. Seeing that subsequent movers move only in as much as they are put in motion by the first mover, as the staff moves only because it is put in motion by the hand. Right? So he's using that just as an illustration to get you to understand this idea that the stick will only move the stone in as much as the stick is put in motion by the hand. Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover, put in motion by no other. So basically what, he is, what he's saying is that if everything were moved by something else, potential being actualized by some concurrent actualizer, which itself is actualized by another concurrent actualizer. If that were the case, then there would be no first actualizer, an actualizer that's not actualized by something else. If that were the case, well then none of these other CIAs, none of these concurrent intermediate actualizers would be able to actualize excess potential. 
Now, why is that, a, that the case? We're going to look at that when we come back from our little break, okay? Andy? Thank you so much, Carlo. Now, there's like 30 things I want to say. I want to start with this. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here's the kicker. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Here's the point, guys. If you think this is just too dry or too abstract, you don't get to pass on this. You don't get a get out of metaphysics free card, okay? There are souls out there that this is the language that they speak. And we don't have the luxury to just say, oh, this is a little bit too hard or a little bit too high or, or abstract or dense or whatever. Look, if it requires intense study, right, for the sake of convincing somebody, it's worth it, right? And we got to think of St. Paul as we're, as we're kind of diving in here and really stretching. Don't think that this is uh, beyond your grasp, okay? It's not. Right? We have an obligation to learn any and all means in order to spread the gospel, all right? And I'm going to mention a couple resources. These handouts are dynamite. These are serious handouts that you want to print and hole punch and put in a three-ring binder, and you're going to want to read through them at least three times, okay? Think of this. And watch the video. And watch the video, right? Uh, this is something where you've got to put on multiple coats of paint in order for it to stick, and don't get intimidated away from doing that. Andy, I often like to say, if Dr. Stephen Bohr can talk about quantum physics <laughs> and all of that stuff, then we can talk about some metaphysics as well, right? Hey, amen to that, man. I'll, I'll keep the rest of my comments for the end here, but know that we'll have a couple other resources to point you to in, in addition to the excellent ones that uh, Carlo Broussard has listed in your reading list. Floor is all yours. If you didn't hear what... Andy was saying, <laughs> if you were using the restroom or something, he was just talking about the importance of stretching our intellectual muscles, right? Uh, in any sort of athletic competition, in order to build the muscles and to gain the ground, you need to have the resistance. The same is true with intellect. We need to sort of stretch these intellectual muscles. This is why the beauty of social media, right? We're going to have the audio and the video. We have the handouts for you to go back over to walk through these steps, right? And this is why in the handout as well, I have Aquinas' text in there because the text sort of simplifies it. It's the summary. And then the syllogisms of each of the steps present the metaphysical background that's sort of driving the lingo of what Thomas is saying in the text itself. So when we left off, once again, when the first wave of motion, we've gone through step one. There's motion in the world, which is the reduction of potency to act potential to actuality. Step two, whatever is in the process of having a potential to new accidental existence actualize, whatever's in motion, must be put in motion by something else, something, out, uh, something other than itself, an extrinsic cause, right? 
Step three, if that mover itself is in motion, well then it would be put in motion by something else. So we have the series of concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new existence. And so far in our reasoning, each of those concurrent actualizers is a concurrent intermediate actualizer. One concurrent actualizer actualized by something else. Now, here's what Aquinas wants to do in step four. He's saying, okay, can this series go on to infinity? And that is to say, what he means is, can this series of concurrent actualizers exist without a concurrent actualizer that's not actualized by something else? So in other words, can there only be concurrent intermediate actualizers of X's potential to acquire the new accidental existence? And Aquinas wants to say no. So in step four, I give you a syllogism to argue for that answer. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to lay out the syllogism, and there's only one of the premises in the syllogism that we really have to defend, okay? And that's going to be premise seven. So in the whole argument itself, we're at premise seven, and here it is. If all concurrent actualizers of X's potential to acquire the new accidental existence were CIAs, were concurrent intermediate actualizers. So if all of the concurrent actualizers were concurrent intermediate actualizers, well, then no concurrent actualizer would exist. None would be actual. In other words, they would have no actuality to impart to any of the other concurrent actualizers and ultimately to impart to X or to actualize X's potential to acquire the new accidental existence. So, premise seven, if all concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new accidental existence were concurrent intermediate actualizers, and no concurrent actualizer of X's potential would exist, but X's potential uh, to new accidental existence, uh, excuse me, premise eight, if no concurrent actualizer of X's potential to a new accidental existence exists, if none of the concurrent actualizers exist, well then guess what? X's potential would not be actualized. It would not be in motion. But we know from sensory experience, X's potential to new accidental existence is in the process of being actualized. It is in motion. Therefore, conclusion four, the concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new existence uh, the, the, therefore, the concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new existence do exist. Conclusion five, therefore, not all concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new existence are intermediate. Not all are concurrent intermediate actualizers. And that is to say, as we're going to see in step five, there's at least one concurrent actualizer that's not actualized by something else. Now, in step four, there's only one of those premises that we really have to defend. And that is premise seven. Here it is. If all concurrent actualizers in the series, right, these concurrent actualizers that are actualizing the potential of X, all of these moved movers, right, if all of these concurrent actualizers were concurrent intermediate actualizers, if every single one of them was being actualized by something else at the moment is actualizing X's potential, right, well, then no concurrent actualizer would exist. How do we prove that? Okay, follow me here. Here's, what, here's how we're going to do this. This is 
premise seven validation, right? If you're following on the handout there. Think about this. Number one, whatever's in the process of having a potential to new existence being actualized doesn't have existence per se. Now, what that means is that it doesn't have existence by its very nature. So whatever, it, whatever has a potential and is being actualized by something else, that thing is not going to exist by its essence. There's going to be a difference between what it is and that it is. It's not going to have actuality of itself. Now, why is that the case? Well, here is the reason. If there is a potency in the process of being actualized, then there's a potency to new existence. But if there's a potency to new existence, well, then existence doesn't belong to that thing by nature. Because you can't be in potency to that which you have by nature. For example, is a triangle in potency to having three straight sides? No. Why? Because three straight sides belongs to the nature or the essence of a triangle. So if something's in potency to existence, well, then it doesn't have existence by nature because you can't be in potency to something that you have by nature, right? So if a potency is in the process of being actualized, it's a potency to new existence. If it's a potency to new existence, even in the accidental order, right? If it's a potency to new existence, well, then that thing doesn't have existence per se of itself by its very nature. On supposition, a potential is in the process of being actualized. So therefore, on supposition, existence isn't had per se. Existence isn't belonging to the nature of the thing. We would call this in philosophy, it's per accidents, okay? So that's how we would validate the first point of premise seven in our defense. Whatever is in the process of having a potential to new existence being actualized, even in the accidental order, it doesn't have existence per se. It doesn't have existence by its very nature, by its essence. Like a triangle has three straight sides by its essence, whatever is in potential to new existence and is being actualized, that thing doesn't have existence by nature, like the triangle has three straight sides by nature. P72 here. A concurrent intermediate actualizer is such that it is in the process of having a potential to new accidental existence being actualized, right? Therefore, a concurrent intermediate actualizer doesn't have existence per se. It doesn't have actuality itself. In simple terms, whatever is moved by another doesn't have existence by its nature. These moved movers in our scenario, these concurrent intermediate actualizers, they're in motion. They're having their potential to new accidental existence being actualized by another. And so therefore, these concurrent intermediate actualizers in the series do not have the fullness of being. They do not have existence by their very nature, like the triangle has three straight sides by its very nature. The existence for these types of things is extrinsic to its nature. It's distinct from what it is. We say it's, they have existence per accidents by accident. It simply happens to be that they have existence. Okay, now, P74. If every concurrent actualizer of X's potential to new existence didn't have existence by its very nature, if it didn't have existence per se, if all of them were CIAs, well then there would be no source from which the concurrent actualizers could derive their existence. Think about it. 
concurrent actualizer A, concurrent actualizer B, concurrent actualizer C. All of these are concurrent intermediate actualizers, right? They're having their potential actualized by another, which tells me none of them have existence per se. None of them have the fullness of being. None of them have existence by their very nature because they're in potency to new existence. And you can't be in potency to that which you have by nature. So if none of these concurrent intermediate actualizers have existence by nature, well then from whence would the existence come? There would be no source from which the concurrent intermediate actualizers of excess potential could derive their existence. P75. On supposition, all concurrent actualizers of excess potential to new existence don't have existence by nature. They're all CAs. And so therefore, on supposition, there's no source from which the concurrent actualizers can derive their existence. P77, if you're following the handout, if there were no source from which the concurrent actualizers could derive their existence, well then no concurrent actualizer of excess potential would exist. P78, on supposition, there's no source from which the concurrent actualizers can derive their existence. P79, therefore, on supposition, no concurrent actualizer of X's potential exists. And that means X would not be having its potential actualized. X wouldn't be in motion. And so this is why Aquinas concludes that there cannot be a series of concurrent intermediate actualizers. There cannot be a series of moved movers without a mover that is not moved, without a concurrent actualizer that is not actualized by something else, a concurrent actualizer that has no potential to new existence to be actualized. Therefore, as we saw in conclusion five, not all concurrent actualizers of excess potential are intermediate. Not all are CIAs. And step five, Aquinas says, and this everyone understands to be God. To just flesh it out, to make it complete. If not all concurrent actualizers of X's potential to new accidental existence are intermediate, well then at least one concurrent actualizer has existence per se. At least one of those concurrent actualizers is going to have existence by its very nature, not deriving it from anything else because it's not in potency to any new existence. P11, not all concurrent actualizers of excess potential to new accidental existence are intermediate. Conclusion six, therefore, at least one concurrent actualizer of excess potential to new existence has existence per se. It has existence by nature. So in summary, Aquinas is saying there's motion. Whatever's in motion is moved by another. If that mover is in motion, then it's moved by another. Thus, we have a series of moved movers. Can the series of moved movers exist in order to explain the effect of motion in the stone? Can the series of moved movers exist without a first mover, a mover that is not moved by another? And he answers no. Why? Because as I spelled out in premise seven through premise nine or to conclusion five, if all of these move movers, if all of these concurrent actualizers were intermediate, being actualized by something else, well, then none of them would exist. And if none of them would exist, well, then X's potential wouldn't be actualized. But we know <laughs> from sense experience, 
excess potential is being actualized. The stone is being moved. And so therefore, the moved movers exist, and therefore, we must conclude that there exists at least one unmoved mover, what we would call an unactualized actualizer, or an, a concurrent actualized that's not actualized by anything outside of itself, because it would have existence per se. It would have existence by its very nature, because it's not in potency to any new accidental existence. If it is not in potency to any new accidental existence, it wouldn't be in potency to substantial existence either, and so it would have existence by itself. This is what we would call ipsum esse subsistence, which is what Aquinas arrives at in the De Ente et Essentia, and that's why I said earlier that it seems as if that argument from on being in essence is sort of running in the background. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some people might say, well, that's hyper-metaphysicalized, Carlo. Well, if you define motion as the reduction of a potency to act, and whatever is being reduced to act must be reduced to act by something already actual, well, then you metaphysically necessarily must conclude to a purely actual being, a concurrent actualizer that is, that is pure actuality itself, in order to explain the fact that the concurrent intermediate actualizers have actuality to import to X in order to actualize its potential. So that's the long version. <laughs> Here's the short version, as you see there on your handout. Premise one. If everything were an actualized actualizer, then there would be an infinite series of actualized actualizers ordered in an essential way without a first actualizer. And that first uh, means having actuality in and of itself or having existence per se by its very nature. Premise two, but there can't be an infinite series of actualized actualizers ordered in an essential way without a first actualizer. Therefore, the conclusion, not everything is an actualized actualizer. There must exist some actualizer, at least one, that is not actualized by something else. That being, as we already demonstrated, would be purely actual or having existence per se by its very nature because it wouldn't be in potency to any existence whatsoever. And that being is God. Right Now, somebody might say, well, you haven't proved that it's absolutely unique. You could possibly have more than one unactualized actualizer. Well, that's a good question. But when you examine in more detail what a purely actual being is, and if purely actual, then existence by nature, pure existence itself, not restricted or limited to this mode of existence rather than that mode, or this amount of actuality rather than that amount, well, then you come to understand that there can only be one such thing. Now, obviously, we don't have time to get into all that, but Aquinas spells that out in future articles and the first part of God. So that, my friends, <laughs> is the uh, how I am currently intellectually satisfied uh, with reading Aquinas' argument for motion. Once again, these metaphysical principles operating in the background uh, of what he's saying in the text. All right. This is some heavy lifting, okay? Uh, we're, we're not used to thinking in this mode, right? We're not used to thinking metaphysically. But I think it's necessary to begin thinking like this because when you get it, by golly, you look at the tree outside and you see God. Not that we're a pantheist or something and that the tree is God, but we see it God-bathed. Because think about it, whatever in existence 
has a potential being actualized. Whatever is in motion right here and right now is sustained. That actualization, that process of actualizing the potential is ultimately grounded in the purely actual being, the unactualized actualizer, namely God. So my potential to speak to you right now, your potential to learn, in as much as you're in the process of learning, in as much as I am in the process of learning, intellectually, God ultimately is the sustainer, the purely actual being, is the ultimate explanation of the fact that I can be in the process right now of teaching and you be in the process of a potential being actualized for you to learn. So that's where the rubber hits the road. This is pretty abstract, but ultimately it's that which explains why we're able to learn and for me to teach right here and right now. Without that purely actual being, none of our potentials would be actualized. You know, so we always talk about, man, that dude has some potential. It just got to get actualized, right? And we, we always talk about somebody having a potential for something. My kids have a great, listen, my daughter, she is, uh, my 11-year-old, my Savannah Claire, has potential, a tremendous amount of potential to be a great pianist, right? Just a natural gift. She's going to need some lessons, though, to help her actualize that potential. Well, folks, ultimately, God is the explanation of why that potential can be actualized in the first place. So this is why all of this metaphysical reasoning stuff, right, is important in our lives. Now, we move to the second way of St. Thomas Aquinas. The second way is actually shorter than the first because we're able to sort of jump to this uh, impossibility of an infinite regress of caused causes in a fairly quick way. But there's a few things I need to say about the datum of efficient causation. So Thomas Aquinas says, the second way is from the nature of the efficient cause. In the world of sense, we find there is an order of efficient causes. There's, because there's no case known, neither is it indeed possible, he says, in which a thing is found to be the efficient cause of itself. For so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. And he says the same thing similarly in the first way, where nothing could move itself as a whole because it would be actual and potential to that motion in the same respect in the same place and time. So too with an efficient cause. Something cannot cause itself to exist because in that case it would have to be existing in order to give itself existence, but on supposition it doesn't exist. So how can it exist and not exist in the same respect, the same place and time, right? So for Aquinas, this is self-evident, which it is. It violates the principle of non-contradiction to say that something could cause itself to exist, to have that active being that distinguishes something from nothing. And this is how Aquinas understands an efficient cause. An efficient cause is that who, uh, whose action makes a thing exist. Now, an efficient cause can be a cause in fieri or a cause in esse. A cause in fieri in Latin is the cause of the becoming of something to be. All right? So father begets son, the becoming of something. But a cause, an efficient cause in esse, is a cause whose action sustains a thing in being. And the second way of Aquinas concerns efficient causes in essay. Now, I would submit it's possible to construct a metaphysical demonstration by starting with causes in theory, but I don't think that's what Aquinas is doing. He's thinking of if an order of efficient causes in essay. That is, the activity of things concurrently being the reason why other things exist, 
okay? And for Aquinas, creatures can act as efficient causes in esse. Several of his different works, even though he thinks God is the absolute cause of being itself, that act which distinguishes a substance from nothing, only God can give that essay, only God can give existence itself. Creatures can be called efficient causes of existence, but in a secondary way, okay? They're only causes of existence of something in as much as their activity contributes to disposing the matter in order for a substantial form to exist in that parcel of matter, right? So, uh, for example, the activity of the sun. The sun gives off light and heat, and that light and heat properly contributes to the disposition of the matter, which can uh, allow for the substantial form of Fido or the substantial form of the rose to exist in that particular matter. matter. Without the light and the heat that's an effect of the sun, Fido would die. Fido would no longer exist. The rose outside would die. It would no longer exist. So for Aquinas, creatures can be efficient causes in esse, sustaining the activity of which sustains other things in being. So you, for example, you can look at the gravity. Gravity is an efficient cause of the extreme pressure of the core of the sun, which in turn causes the nuclear fusion of hydrogen atoms to make the helium atoms, which in turn causes the light and the heat, which in turn properly disposes matter to receive the substantial forms of Fido and the rose, which is necessary for those things to exist. So inasmuch as the activity of something concurrently contributes to something else continuing to exist, for Aquinas, that's a an efficient cause in essay. And I would submit that that's what he has in mind when he says the second way is from the order of efficient causes that we observe in nature. Okay? Now, before we get into the argument, how is this different than the first way? Well, notice in the first way, we restricted the first way to an efficient cause, a mover, right? Because all movers are efficient causes but we restricted efficient causality to the process of acquiring new accidental existence, right? Whereas in the second way, what Aquinas I think wants to do is he's expanding the notion of efficient causality. Rather than looking at an efficient cause simply of the process of acquiring new accidental existence, such as a mover, importing motion, he wants to expand the notion of efficient causality to uh, a cause of substantial existence right here and right now. So the stone may move by the stick, first way, but the fact that the stone exists, second way, or the fact that Fido is moving, acquiring new spatial location, new actuality, new accidental existence. Uh, by certain, you know, the, the leg is moved by the flexing of the muscles, which is moved by the firing of the neurons in Fido, right? Okay, so that's the first way. But the second way is asking the question, well, why does Fido exist to begin with, right? And you can even, I think, construct a second way by starting with an efficient cause, of accidental existence here and now. So the lamp in your house being suspended from the ground by the links in the chain, which is held up by the beam in the ceiling. 
that lamp has accidental existence, a spatial location falling within one of the nine categories of accidents of Aristotle, which falls under the category of being. And I think even the second way, this expanded notion of efficient causality can apply even to that starting point of accidental existence itself, and then reasoning to a first efficient cause that's existence by, that has existence by nature. So let's go through the argument. Like I said, it's going to be shorter than the first way, so we might be able to actually finish here, <laughs> and then we can take some questions. Here we go. The second way, once again, just to establish there's an order of efficient causes on the handout, I, as, I articulated it as step one. An order of efficient causes in essay entails one thing's activity, or many things, concurrently, and that's the key word right there, concurrently causing another thing to exist. Now keep in mind, this order of efficient causality that we're talking about here, that Aquinas is talking about, is not an order of efficient causes in an accidental way, like grandfather begetting father, father begetting son. That's not the type, that would be an order of efficient causes in theory of becoming. That's not what Aquinas has in mind because elsewhere, later on in the, in the paragraph of the text, he's going to say, you know, inasmuch as you have the cause, you have the effect. Without the cause, you don't have the effect. So he's thinking knife cutting orange or knife cutting banana. He's thinking of music coming, the, the sound of my voice coming from my voice. I stop talking, no, no, no voice, right? Or the music coming from the instruments. You stop playing the music, you stop playing the instruments, no music. That's the order of efficient causality. So an order of efficient causes an essay entails one thing's activity concurrently causing another thing to exist. Pre P2, premise two, in the world of sense, yeah, we observe the activity of some things concurrently causing other things to exist. I just mentioned the activity of the sun concurrently causing Fidel to exist. Once we understand what Thomas means by such a thing as causing Fidel to exist in a secondary way. It's contributing to disposing the matter, to, to hold the form, to have the substantial form of phyto. And inasmuch as you got substantial form of dog in this parcel of matter, guess what? You have phyto. And phyto exists. And without that activity of the sun, that light and the heat generated by the nuclear fusion, right, in the sun, eh, phyto would be, say, tu finish, as we say in Louisiana. He would be done. That's it, all right? So there's this order of efficient cause, and order of efficient causes is one thing's activity concurrently causing something else to exist. Yeah, we see that in the world of sense, so therefore, conclusion one, there exists an order of efficient causes in essay in the world of sense. Now, because I'm running out of time, I'm not going to read the text of Aquinas to you right now, because basically all he's asking now at this point is, can every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence be caused to exist by something else? That's the question he's asking. Can the series of concurrent efficient calls, just like in the first way, a series of concurrent actualizers, right? Can the series of concurrent efficient causes of X's existence exist, can all of these concurrent efficient causes exist without a concurrent efficient cause that's not caused to exist by something else. And his answer to that question is no. There cannot be a series of concurrent efficient causes of X's existence without that first efficient cause, a first cause that's not caused to exist by something else, an uncaused cause. So here's how we demonstrate that. Very similar to in the first way. So right here, I'm in step two, if you're following along on our handout, and we're looking at P3, premise three. 
if every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence were itself caused to exist, then no concurrent efficient cause of X's existence would exist. But the concurrent efficient causes, P4, but the current efficient causes of X's existence do exist. So therefore, not every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence is itself caused to exist. That's the argument for step two, right? So our primary premise that we have to defend is premise three. If every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence were itself caused to exist, if every one of them were a concurrent intermediate efficient cause, well then none of these concurrent efficient causes would exist. How do we know that? Follow me here. If every concurrent efficient cause were caused to exist, well then every concurrent efficient cause would have existence per accidens. That is to say, if every concurrent efficient cause is caused to exist by something else, none of those concurrent efficient causes has existence by nature. Their existence is distinct from its essence. How do I know that? Well, whatever is concurrently caused to exist by an extrinsic cause, that has existence per accidens. Why? Because, listen, if something had existence by nature, it wouldn't require, it wouldn't be in potency to the causal activity of something else. You don't have a triangle being in potency to receiving three straight sides by something else, right? Why? Because three straight sides belongs to the essence of a triangle. Now, you might need something else to give a triangle the color red. You might need something else to put a triangle in the wood. But... The triangle is not in potency, doesn't need the causal activity of something else to have three straight sides because three straight sides belongs to the nature of a triangle. So too, if something has existence by essence, if something has existence by nature and its existence and essence are identical and not distinct, well then it's not going to be in potency to the causal activity of something else in order to exist because it's going to exist by nature, right? So whatever is concurrently caused to exist by an extrinsic cause, that thing doesn't have existence by nature. That thing only has existence per accidents, accidentally. And on supposition, in our scenario here, every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence is concurrently caused to exist by an extrinsic cause. And so therefore, on supposition, every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence has existence per accidents. That is, on supposition, hypothetically, every concurrent efficient cause in this scenario does not have existence by nature, only has existence per accidents. That is, the existence is distinct from its nature. Why is that? Because every concurrent efficient cause is being caused by something else. And whatever is being caused by something else, guess what? It doesn't have existence by nature. Just as the triangle doesn't need a cause outside of itself to have three straight sides, a concurrent efficient cause that would have existence by nature wouldn't need a cause outside of itself because it would exist by nature. Now, we've looked at P3 validation one. If every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence were caused to exist, then every concurrent efficient cause would have existence per accidents. Okay? Now, here we go, P3 two. If every concurrent efficient cause had existence per accidents, well then guess what? No concurrent efficient cause would exist. If every concurrent efficient cause didn't have existence by nature, 
then none of those concurrent efficient causes would exist. Why? Because there would be no source from which these concurrent efficient causes could derive their existence. If none of these concurrent efficient causes has existence by nature, how do we know that? Because each and every one of them is being caused by something else. If none of these concurrent efficient causes has existence by nature, well then from whence does existence come? From what would these concurrent efficient causes receive their existence? There would be no source from which to receive their existence if none of these concurrent efficient causes has existence by nature. On supposition, every concurrent efficient cause is caused to exist. P34, therefore, on supposition, every concurrent efficient cause has existence per accidens, and therefore, on supposition, no concurrent efficient cause exists. To summarize, if every concurrent efficient cause is caused by something else, then every concurrent efficient cause would have existence per accidens. If every concurrent efficient cause had existence per accidents, well, then no concurrent efficient cause would exist. But we know that concurrent efficient causes of existence do exist. Therefore, our conclusion, not every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence is itself caused to exist. Remember the hypothetical. If every concurrent efficient cause was caused to exist by something else, then no concurrent efficient cause would exist. But we know that concurrent efficient causes of X's existence do exist. The sun, right, exists concurrently causing Phyto to exist. Therefore, not every concurrent efficient cause of X's existence is itself caused to exist. And finally, in step three, St. Thomas says, to which everyone gives the name God. Whatever's not caused to exist has existence per se. And as we've already concluded, there ex exists at least one concurrent efficient cause that is not caused to exist. Therefore, there exists at least one concurrent efficient cause of X's existence that has existence per se. That is to say, its active existence and its essence are identical and not distinct. And my dear friends, that's the is ipsum esse subsistence, subsistent being itself, God. So the shortened version, to wrap all that up, you could say it like this. If everything were caused to exist by something else, then there would be an infinite series of existential caused causes ordered in an essential way. Because every, the activity of every single one of them is necessary right here and right now for X to exist. But there can't be an infinite series of existential caused causes ordered in an essential way. Therefore, not everything can be caused to exist by something else there must exist at least one existential cause that doesn't have to receive its existence from something outside of itself, i.e. an uncaused cause. So that would be how I would approach the second way and the metaphysical principles that's driving uh, what Thomas Aquinas is saying. We see an order of efficient causes ordered essentially, whereas you have concurrent efficient causes explaining why X exists, this series of concurrent efficient causes of X's existence cannot exist without a cause that's not caused by something else. Because if it did, within none of the concurrent efficient causes would exist. But the concurrent efficient causes of X's existence do exist. And so therefore there must be a cause 
that does not rely on any extrinsic cause for its own existence, precisely because it would have existence per se, it would have existence by its very nature. So that's how I would read the second way. So my dear friends, uh, once again, I, I recognize that's some pretty heavy lifting and uh, some pretty abstract metaphysics. Uh, but like I said, I think it's important that we approach Thomas's five ways in this way because it puts us on a level that allows us to metaphysically demonstrate God's existence. And when you look at the five ways through this lens of being and existence, and being things being caused to exist and acquiring new actuality, it allows us to arrive at the conclusion that God exists. So that's how I would present the first and second way. Andy? Thank you so much, Carla. I really appreciate it. What we've been given here is something that can be chewed upon for a long, long time. Now, in one sense, I'm going to recommend a couple of things. I want to recommend those things with this qualifier, which is, don't assume that if something can't be understood within a week, it's worth getting tossed out. What we're experiencing here for many of you may have a similar experience as like all of a sudden you're in a different room and everyone's speaking a completely different language. Now we know the best way to learn a language is just immerse yourself in there. Just hang out with all the people that are speaking a language that you don't understand right? And they'll, they will be speaking and eventually it becomes yours. And I use that as an analogy to encourage you guys to stick with this. I, I want to say a couple other things here. One is um, uh, some of you may be feeling like Tertullian here. If you guys know this famous line of his. He, he was famous for saying, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In the sense of, you know, there's this big controversy of when we are demonstrating and articulating the faith, do we need to make it accessible to the language of reason? We've already been given divine revelation from God, so we have direct knowledge. So why not just take the shortcut, right, as opposed to going through this long explanation? The reason is because God wants us to be able to communicate his truth to anybody in any language. And we have to make this accessible to anyone. So if you think that, this stuff is just whatever, dry and cut, and, it, and it's a completely different world. It's not. It may be challenging, but it, it is very important. Andy, if I may interject just one yes. thing. Guys, one of the reasons why, you know, obviously when you're dialoguing with somebody, unless they have the time, you're not going to be walking through these steps one at a time, right? But the reason why I present these steps to you in a formal way is so that you can read over them and assimilate them into your own mind so that you can be clear in your own thinking. And then you, in the dialogue, are able to articulate the concepts in a natural conversation as the conversation develops. But you have the principles there. You have the principles in the background from which you can draw. Because if you don't have the principle, then what you say is not going to be correct. What you say is going to do an injustice to Aquinas' five ways in particular, and to any sort of philosophical demonstration of God's existence. So the principles have to be present in skeleton form in order to have that rigorous foundation to build your, so your argument to prove God's existence. But then in your own way of speaking, you would begin to put the flesh on those bones as you're speaking to somebody in a conversation. So just a little justification for sort of the formal demonstration of the presentation. 
Certainly. A lot of these terms, you view them as sort of these items of uh, almost like meat that need to get put in this crock pot and set on low for hours, right? And just let it stew. And it might not even, you might not even become aware or conscious of, of some of the concepts registering until you let them sit in your mind for a while. Pope Benedict Emeritus uh, XVI talks about um, this experience that um, many people have with praying the Psalms. Right? The churches always have this tradition of use, using the Psalms as this uh, school of prayer. And he has this beautiful quote where he talks about how the Psalms at first, when someone prays them, they seem like this other kind of language, right? And, and it almost seems mechanical. But then after a while, just like how a child and learning language just kind of like repeats things because they're hearing it. Like my daughter, Philomena, is just saying the most ridiculous things now. Like and she's just hearing, she's just repeating what she's hearing, right? And then all of a sudden, what she just repeats, she gains ownership of after a long time of exposure and then uses the very thing that seems so foreign to her to communicate her own ideas. What you're getting, like Carla was saying at the beginning, the summa is a summa, that is, summa is summary, right? The arguments that we're getting from Aquinas in the summa are not the full-blown version. He's assuming that you have a background knowledge. And primarily, other philosophers, like Carlo was mentioning, um, are important, but primarily we're looking at Aristotle, okay? Now, there's good news and there's bad news. Bad news is this is not nearly anything close to what he wrote, but these arguments, are, for a certain extent, are assuming this kind of knowledge, okay, plus way more. That's the bad news. The good news is there's a really great book, Aristotle for Everybody, that basically condenses all of this to that, okay? Now, is it going to be as detailed? No, but it's a great way to get your feet wet with some of these concepts that you just can't run away from. Yeah, you know, for example, Andy, I am Matt Frad has an ebook out, a very short ebook on how to understand uh, Thomistic jargon. And unfortunately, I can't remember the title of his little ebook, but if you go like madfrad.com or madfrad Thomistic jargon, Google that, uh, you may come across uh, his website where he has that ebook that you can download. It's just like a few pages from, you know, on a PDF file where mm -hmm. he goes uh, and explains act and potency, essence and existence and uh, form, matter, and the various other metaphysical concepts that I've been employing in these demonstrations. You probably were going to talk about what book should be read or which chapter of a book, but everything that I've been saying is summarized in just a beautiful way. I haven't found any other book that summarizes these concepts better than uh, Fazer's book, Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. Because in that book, he goes through those metaphysical concepts, form, matter, potency, act, essence, existence, transcendentals, and all, which is going to be important for the fourth way, final causation, which is important for the fifth way. And he explains those things in a very uh, accessible way. So I would recommend that book. And read chapter, I think it's chapter three in Natural Theology, where he presents the third, fourth, and fifth way, which we're going to try to get to next week. We've got a whole bunch of really good questions. So why don't we just launch in here? I'm going to actually kind of combine two questions because I think okay. they're kind of similar. Lisa Corba is asking, how does Dawkins 
sort of respond to arguments like this. In a similar way, Wes writes in, is the Aristotelian slash Thomistic metaphysics assumed in the five ways compatible with contemporary science, for example, physics? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, in Dawkins' The God Delusion, uh, he only devotes, unfortunately, just a few pages, right, to dealing with Aquinas' five ways and just pretty much dismisses them as not having any value whatsoever. But unfortunately, uh, there's various caricatures and misunderstandings of the five ways. So Dawkins and many other new atheists, for example, will say things like, well, if God is the uncaused cause, well, well, what caused God? You know, if everything needs a cause, you started out with causation and something is caused by something else and everything needs a cause, well, then who caused God? Why do you stop the, the explanation with God that seems to be arbitrary, right? Well, obviously, that's just a misunderstanding of Aquinas' ways because he's not saying everything is in motion. He's not saying everything is, is cause. He's simply starting with motion itself, saying whatever is in motion is moved by another. Whatever is caused is caused by another. And when you reason through uh, the series of cause causes, asking can such a series of cause causes exist without a first cause that's not caused, the answer is no. Why? Because none of this, the series of cause causes wouldn't exist in the first place. So in order to account for the existence of the series of caused causes, which explains why X exists, you metaphysically have to assert that a first cause that's not caused exists, that has existence by nature. Otherwise, you're going to have to end up denying the very existence of X itself, which is absurd. So when we arrive to this conclusion of God not being caused, it's not arbitrary. It's the metaphysical conclusion of these metaphysical premises that are valid in construction and their argument. They're metaphysically necessary and true, and so the conclusion necessarily follows. So it's not in any way arbitrary to say that God is uncaused. It's simply the logical conclusion of the premises that we started with. And with regard to whether the Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysical system is compatible with contemporary uh, science and scientific findings, I would say the answer is yes. And once again, the book that I cited earlier by Dr. Fazer, Introduction to Scholastic Metaphysics, he deals with a lot of those issues of apparent incompatibility between the Aristotelian Thomistic system of metaphysics and contemporary science and shows how they in fact harmonize. And I must say that he's actually working on a book right now that's going to be dealing with some more of those issues as well. And even in his new book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, he deals with some of those issues as well within the context of defending five proofs for God's existence. It's not necessarily the five ways of Aquinas, but there are five distinct proofs for God's existence. And in the context of articulating those proofs, he deals with some of those objections from contemporary science, such as, you know, virtual particles, so-called coming into existence without a cause, uh, even dealing with Newton's law of inertia, which would apparently undermine the first way of whatever's moved, it needs to be moved by another. And he deals with those issues as well and shows that there is no incompatibility, but there is indeed harmony. So yes, there are resources out there to address that concern. Let's go for this one. I saw it at the very beginning. This, this is the prime rib right here. All right, I'm going to read it slow. This is from Vincent. Vincent says, 
I generally read the first way as having a more prominent place for the principle of proportionate causality, in parentheses, related to your P3. Since any actualizer must have the quality that it actualizes in another, thus requiring a first mover to be purely actual, that is, having every actuality it actualizes in every other being through intermediate causes. However, this, I think, relies upon the ultimate unity of every perfection. Do you think that this reading is merely an alternative phrasing of your reading, or does it require additional explanation alien to the plain text of the first way? All right, so if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, with regard to proportionate causality, that is to say whatever is in the effect must be in the cause in some way. So some people actually get in trouble with this. So they'll think, well, if the effect is motion, well then if whatever's in the effect has to be in the cause, well then the cause is gonna have to be in motion, right? And so if you reason to a series of move movers, well then you're gonna have to postulate that first mover as being in motion which according to our supposition, according to our principles, it would have to be moved by another, right? This is, this is a problem many run into, but we have to understand the principle of proportionate causality that's sort of underlying the first way and the second way is whatever potential is being actualized must be actualized, as Thomas says, by something that is actual. The actualizer or the cause doesn't necessarily have to have what is in the effect formally, we would say in philosophy. It could have it virtually as if it has the power to bring about the actualization of the potential, or it has it imminently. It has the perfection in the utmost degree. So if we were to look at the transcendentals of goodness and truth, right? God being the first cause of all these perfections has these perfections in the imminent way, right, to the umph degree, unlimited, whereas goodness is limited to this thing and that thing. But in God, goodness is unlimited because he is being unlimited and being in goodness are convertible. So God can cause goodness in things because he's unlimited, having goodness in an imminent way. But God can also cause a material thing to exist, right? Or motion within a body, whether it be through an intermediate thing, an intermediate actualizer, or directly himself. But that doesn't mean God is a body, because God, by virtue of being pure act, has virtually the power, the power in and of himself, to bring about the effect of motion, or bring about the existence of material things in itself. So the principle of proportionate causality doesn't restrict us to saying whatever is in the effect formally must be in the cause formally because the principle of proportionate causality allows the cause to have the, uh, the perfection that's in the, in the effect, to have what's in the effect not only formally but also possibly imminently or virtually. So, for example, a simple example, I might have a $20 bill in my wallet that I could give to you. That would be like the effect, the $20 bill being in the cause in a formal way, right? Or I could have the $20 bill virtually. So I might not have the $20 in my wallet, but I could go to the bank and get you $20, right? Or I might have the $20 in the most imminent way. I might have 
a printing press machine that can make money, right? Okay? And then I can just give you all the $20 bills I want, right? So just because something is in the effect in a formal way, it doesn't necessarily follow that the cause of that effect must have that quality formally as well. It could have it also virtually or imminently. So in as much as God is purely actual, he has the power within himself to bring about new actuality within the universe, whether that actuality is a substantial actuality or substantial existence, or whether that new actuality is accidental existence, whether it be place, quality, quantity, matter itself, etc. So hopefully that kind of gets at the question. Harold Gomez wrote in a question, and I think we're going to end on this one here, it has to do with the relationship between the first way and the second way. He asks, all right, so if I understand this correctly, the first way is the effect, and the second way is the cause. Two ways are interconnected. Uh, is yeah. this correct? Well, I mean, that's one way some Thomistic scholars look at it, whereas in the first way is looking at what is being moved, and the second way is looking at the cause of things. And although that's a plausible interpretation, when I read the five ways, I see both and and both first and second way. So in the, set, in the first way, yes, he's starting with a potential being actualized, which must be actualized by another. In the second way, he's starting with causes that are being caused by others, right? An order of efficient causes, an order of causes causing something else to exist, but that cause being caused by something else, and an order or a series of concurrent efficient causes that are intermediate. So in the second way, even in the second way, you're starting with a cause that has a potential to existence, substantial existence, right here and right now, being actualized by the concurrent causal activity of something else. So it seems to me that the first way and the second way are looking at the effect and the cause simultaneously. And, and so if that is present in both starting points of Aquinas' first and second way, then it would seem hard to say that that's the way to look at it. I've heard, like some of my professors and some Thomistic scholars, read it, the starting points in that way. But upon further study, I'm intellectually satisfied and I've come to the conclusion that perhaps in the first way, it's the process, because that's what motion is, the in-betweenness of the potency being actualized, the potential being in the process of being actualized by an actualizer. Whereas in the second way, he's expanding the notion of efficient causality to include the causal activity of something that's going to cause something to substantially exist right here and right now or the causal activity of something that's going to explain the accidental existence of something right here and right now, the lamp being suspended uh, from the ground. So notice that in the second way, he's not looking at the process or the progressive actualization of a potency. That is, in motion, he's looking more so at a potential that is being actualized right here and right now, barring the process barring motion. And that provides two, in my reading, that provides two distinct starting points, right? A process of potential being actualized, and then a potency being actualized right here and right now without the process. That is a cause in essay, right? A cause that's necessary for the sustaining of existence, whether it be substantial existence 
or accidental existence. So that seems to me to be uh, the difference between the first and second wave. Once again, I'm open to further discussion to be corrected on that. But when I intellect, when I look at it, that's that sort of satisfies me intellectually. So thanks, Carla. It's a great question, Harold, and so that's a that's really how you get to uh, grasping some of these concepts is seeing how, what are the connections between the various statements that are being made? So it's a, it's a really good question. And I must say, Andy, that it was that particular question I struggled with the most in articulating the five ways of how to distinguish the first and the second way to make them distinct, right? As mm -hmm. two distinct ways. And that conclusion that I've come to, I'm, I'm satisfied with right now because in the first way, it's efficient causality restricted to the process of actualizing potency. Whereas in the second way, it's a more expanded version of efficient causality. And to me, that provides two distinct ways. You've been uh, given a near impossible task of trying to present Aquinas' five ways in a total of three hours over two class sessions. So uh, really, I, I know I'm not speaking for myself, and there's lots of people writing in too. Uh, we appreciate the vigor and the, uh, and the sort of studiousness that's required to try to condense such complicated information to this. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. God bless you all. See you next week. For those who are going to uh, stick around here, I just want to share a little uh, story. I've saved this letter that I got. This was my um, very first year teaching. There was, uh, in the school that I was teaching at, usually every class would have at least one or two international students. Okay, and primarily this particular school, we would receive students from either Korea or from China. And um, it became very apparent very quickly that, particularly in the subject of religion, additional kind of like a supplemental education was required. Okay, so what I would do is I would, we worked something out in, in the schedule where I would sit down with just the two students or just the one student and try to present um, some of the information in new and kind of more um, understandable ways that were fitting their experience. The whole purpose of the story is to just give us perspective on like, what is the purpose and function of these kind of arguments and how do they relate and and, and do we see fruits being born from uh, the presentation of these arguments? For many of the, the students that I worked with, particularly who were coming from China, they never a single time even heard the term God. So the whole notion of a divine being w was entirely foreign. and the faith had to be presented to meet that a very intense circumstance and the context of which that person is approaching. Well, okay, so we had this student, and sometimes you see the students come in and they just are completely overwhelmed. They're, they're sitting for eight or so hours every day, five days a week in a classroom, and everyone's speaking a language that, they, that is not their own, um, and they have to take tests in the language that they don't know, right? And, and you either see these students completely just get overridden or you see them just rise to the occasion like it's nobody's business and, and you see these little heroes come out. Well, this girl was most certainly a hero 
and uh, wound up excelling so much. I, I remember she would sit in the back right corner of the classroom, and every religion class, I would be making a point, and I'd look at her in the eyes, and I wouldn't know, it, are these words making contact or not? I could not tell. Okay, I could not tell until I got this letter. Now, towards the end of the year, I wanted to try and challenge the eighth graders. So we did a kind of more abbreviated or simplified version of uh, one of these arguments for the existence of God. And you can imagine what the reaction was of the eighth grade boys, you know, in the first couple of rows or whatever, they're completely passed out and dozing off. This student remained very alert. I thought that was a little bit odd. Didn't think anything of it and, and didn't hear anything of it for, for at least two months or so. I was then given this note at the end of the year, and I want to read it to you exactly how the student wrote it. Okay, so remember, English is not the first language here. And this is an eighth grader. So find the phrasings or whatever endearing rather than confusing. And I'm, I had to change some of this to keep the, the person anonymous. Okay, but this student wrote, this school is like my family here. It's the start of everything. You led me to know God and know my faith. I still remember the proof of causes. You might not know, but that is the point I started to believe. If there is any, then I start to believe that our Father does exist and that he is the Creator and our Lord. Even when I look back now, it seems like a miracle how I come to this school and get to know God and eventually truly join as one of his people. So many people have helped me on my way. I doubt if I can make it to this point by myself. You are my earliest guide on my way developing faith and the one who has great impacts on me. As I see you as the one who's with me at the beginning, when I first developed my faith. It would be my utmost pleasure to have you with me again at the new beginning, my baptism. That young girl went on to get baptized her junior year of high school. And guess how many of her friends were at her baptism? Zero. This wasn't because it was something that made her popular or whatever, look cool, nothing. It was her religion teacher there from her high school and me and then uh, uh, the guardian that she was with, right? Her parents are in China, so they couldn't be there. And besides the sheer, I wish you could see this girl's face when she was bending over the baptismal font and becoming a child again, once again of God, the pure joy that was in that girl's soul was unspeakable. And I'll always remember her religion teacher came up afterwards. This is her high school religion teacher. And the gift that she gave this young lady was her own Bible. But what's funny, not funny, but, but funny in terms of caught my attention, is that she gave the student the Bible and then sort of 
they had an exchange of words. And then I saw that same teacher take the Bible back. And I thought, what is going on here? Uh, I, I eventually had a conversation with this teacher and, and she was explaining, we're now at uh, winter break. So high school is taking a break and the student's going back home and it's illegal for her to bring a Bible back home. It's like, good grief, you know, and, and the courage that this girl has. And to think, I mean, I don't really know. My thoughts are going all over the place at this point. But I, I hope you uh, are sort of experiencing what I'm trying to express here, that we try to plant the seeds in any way possible, and we may not even see those growth occur. And it might even be in some weird way that you think is like, oh, this was a failure. I mean, when I was presenting this to the eighth graders, I was like, okay, good hand, handful of them got it, but I think I completely lost the rest of the course. And I had no idea that this type of expression was resonating very clearly to someone who may have not been um, formed or introduced to uh, religious expressions or terms, but was extremely. Uh, logical and thought in a very systematic way and um, these arguments can really really assist somebody um, who's sort of more inclined towards that kind of thought so anyway I share that with you uh, for what it's worth and we still got a good crowd hanging out here but it's past everyone's bedtime and so I'm gonna shut this down I love you all God bless you guys we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.